pray and prepare our hearts for the reading of God's Word. Father, we thank You for these glorious truths. We confess that so often we can be tossed to and fro by the things of life, that we, we forget the things that we know, that You are good, that You are sovereign, and that You love us. And Father, we pray that You would help us to remember Help us in life circumstances to remember the cross where you have uh, showed in such an infinite way the depths of your sovereign grace, the depths of your love, the depths of your holiness, the depths of who you are as Christ hung on that tree for sinners such as us. And Father, as we remember the blood of Christ that covers our sin, as we remember that we have the righteousness of Christ through faith, We come before you this morning boldly and ask that you would do what we cannot do. We ask that you would work in us, that any in our midst who do not have Christ as Savior, that they would have Christ as their Savior, that you would bring them to faith in Christ. We pray for those here today, for us who are Christians, that you would do what what we can't do, that you would sanctify us, that you would conform us into the image of Christ, that you would wash us with the water of your word, that you would purify us with the water of your word. Father, help us to um, approach your word with a sense of reverence and awe. Help us to be ready to listen, to apply, and pray that you would help me. Father, help me to clearly uh, say what your word says, protect me from error, and bless your people this morning. We pray that you would do that for our good and for your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be uh, jumping around a bit, but this passage, just this short verse in Acts chapter 2, we'll help us uh, to frame our our morning. So Acts chapter 2, verse 42. As you're turning there, uh, context here is uh, Pentecost has just happened. uh, uh, God has empowered His people through the Holy Spirit. Um, Many have uh, uh, came to faith through the proclamation of Peter and the power of of God. And in verse 42, uh, we see uh, what they do after that. What does the church Uh, What does the people of God do after uh, this uh, message at Pentecost? We read in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is what they did. This is what the early church did. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is what the church did after Pentecost. This is what they devoted themselves to. And as we think of the, about this verse, as we uh, think about uh, what the early church did, we should be struck about the fact that a lot of people have a lot of ideas 
a lot of different thoughts about what church should be like. That's a pretty important question, right? What, what should the people of God do when they gather together, when they assemble together? How should the people of God worship God? Those are important questions. Those are important things to think through. And, and different people have different thoughts. And I think in large part that's because different people have different uh, authorities, different uh, ways that they answer that question. What should church be like? There's a variety of things that uh, can be our authority, can be our ultimate authority. Uh, feelings, for one, is, is uh, very prevalent in our culture. So how do you decide what to do? How do you decide what's good? What, how do you decide what's true? Well, many people in our culture, even sometimes us, can look to our feelings, right? So if it feels good, it must be good. If it feels bad, if it makes me feel uncomfortable, it, it must be bad. If feelings are our ultimate authority, and, and we can take that authority and, and apply that to, to what we think church should be like. If something we do as a church feels good, well, then it must be good. If something that we do in church doesn't feel so good, it must not be good. And you can kind of see how if, if that's our authority, if, if feelings is the way that we answer that question, what should church be like, how that might give rise to some of the church things that are going on today. Very entertainment focused, uh, very focused on evoking emotional responses um, because it feels good. Or maybe uh, pep talk, you know, that, that every Sunday you can come in and get your little motivational speech for the week. feels good. If our authority for what church should be like is our feelings, those are the sort of things that happen. Another way we can answer that question, what should church be like, is pragmatism. Pragmatism. Uh, pragmatism basically uh, judges uh, the value of something, the goodness of something based upon the results. And so if you get the results that you're looking for, the thing is good. The thing is right. Next Sunday, we're going to have a monster truck rally here in the sanctuary. That would probably bring in a lot of people, wouldn't it? It would bring about results. So it must be good. If results are our ultimate authority as to how we should do church. Tradition can be another authority. Tradition, if, if it's something we've always done, it must be good and right. <laughs> now, there's good traditions. My favorite one, Christmas time, uh, my wife and I go to the, the frozen food aisle and get all the, the, the best of the best, you know, orange chicken and pot stickers. And, and when we decorate our house, we, we just go for it. We, we pig out. We have a feast of these things that are completely unhealthy. That's a fun tradition. It's not a bad thing, right? But if tradition is our ultimate authority, if tradition is our ultimate authority as to what church should look like, what it must look like, we could run into some problems, couldn't we? Again, tradition, this naturally happens. We, we always sing three songs, right? And then someone comes up here and, and does the missionary moment, and then we sing two songs. That, that's tradition, and that's helpful, actually, because you kind of know what to expect. But 
It's, it's not able to be the ultimate authority. Another authority that people might turn to, to to consider what church should be like is novelty, sort of the opposite. That if it's new, if it's flashy, if it's exciting, then it's good. Well, I think many of us see that there's a lot of new things that aren't so good. That novelty is not able to be the ultimate authority. Now, does that mean that just because something is new, it's bad? No. But again, it's not able to be our ultimate authority as to what we should do as a body of believers, of what a church should be like. You see, as Christians, we have a different ultimate authority. We have a different ultimate authority. Our authority for what church should be like is not our feelings. It's not pragmatism. It's not tradition. It's not novelty. Our authority for what church should be like, the ultimate authority, is Scripture alone. Scripture alone is able to tell us what is good and right for the church to do. It's infallible. It's sufficient. will never fail us. Now, it can be easy for us to decide what is a good church based upon faulty criteria. Not necessarily bad. But are those the things that we should prioritize? Are those the things that we should value? All too often we can easily value things in church that are not valued in Scripture. I don't remember Paul saying to Timothy, find a church with people your age, Timothy. 30s only. Right? It's not, not a value in Scripture, not a bad thing, but it becomes a bad thing when we prioritize those things over and against the things that Scripture prioritizes, the things that Scripture values, the thing that, things that God cares about. And I, th- I think part of it, you know, wh- why do we go down this road? Why do we value things that God doesn't value? Why do we ask the questions that God doesn't ask? And, and I think it's because we, we start with the wrong question. We start with the wrong question. We can be tempted to ask, how do I want to worship God? How do I want to worship God? That's not the question we should be asking. The question we should be asking is, how does God want to be worshipped? How does God want to be worshipped? He's the object of our worship. He's the recipient of our worship. It's not, how do I want to worship God, but how does God want to be worshipped? Does he say anything about it? And he does. He says many things in Scripture. Likewise, we can be tempted to ask, what do I think is necessary in church? What do I think is necessary in church? When we should ask, what does God think is necessary in church? Because if we truly believe that this is sufficient, this should tell us all that we need to know about what is necessary in church what is needed, what is important, what we should prioritize. Scripture, God's Word is a sufficient authority in knowing what a church should be like. It's sufficient to tell us how God wants to be worshipped. It's sufficient to tell us what we ought to value in church. And so, just a little application before we dive in some more. 
basically, whatever Scripture commands for the church is sufficient for the church. It's enough. Whatever Scripture is silent on for the church is not necessary for the church. It doesn't mean it's bad, but it's not needed. It's not necessary. It's not essential. The things that God commands are essential. And so, that should lead us to the next question. What does Scripture tell us about church? What does God tell us about church? God says many things. We don't have enough time to go through everything. But this morning, we're going to see that there's a beautiful simplicity to the things that God commands uh, for the worship of His church. That is simple. There's very little that we actually need. It's simple. It can be done uh, really anywhere. You can worship God in Africa in these ways, the ways that He commands. You can worship God in uh, Japan in the way that He commands. You can worship God anywhere, really, at any time. The things that He commands are simple. They're, they're beautiful. All we need, we'll see, is a Bible, an elder, an assembly of Christians, some bread and wine, and prayer. Simple. Simple things. Simple things. And these are the things that we should value. These are the things that God uses to build His church. These simple things. And so with that in mind, let's reread our text this morning. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Within this text, we see four things that the early church devoted themselves to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And uh, as a side note, this passage is descriptive. It's just describing what uh, these Christians did. But as we look through the New Testament, we'll see that these very things that the, uh, the New Testament church is being described as doing are the very things that God actually prescribes the church to do. The very things that these guys are doing are the things that God commands us to do. And so first of all, again, we see that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, the apostles were a unique group. There there are no modern-day apostles. Uh, The apostles gave both the inspired interpretation of the Old Testament while also pinning the inspired teaching of the New Testament. And so, for us, uh, since we don't have apostles in our day, a devotion to the apostles' teaching is, in a sense, a devotion to the Word of God. The New Testament, which they wrote, and the Old Testament, which they interpreted. And so, what are we to do in our day? We are to devote ourselves as a church to the teaching of God's Word. And, and, and the Apostle Paul makes it very clear throughout the pastoral epistles. Listen to this. To Timothy and to all teachers, uh, all pastors, Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 13, listen to this. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. That's what is commanded That is what is prescribed for the church to do, that pastors 
are to devote themselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and, and to teaching. And that, because it's commanded, is an essential part of the church. It's, a, it's an essential part of how we worship God is by sitting under the teaching of a pastor. It's essential because God's commanded it, and it's essential because God uses it. Now, it's a very important principle. How, how do we grow in the, in the Christian life? Does God just command us just because? Does He just tell us to do things just because? You know, with, with your kids, if, if you've had kids or maybe you remember as a kid growing up, why, why do parents tell their kids to do things? Sometimes it's for bad reasons. <laughs> but many times it's because they want what is good for their children. Why do, you tell, why do I tell my son to brush his teeth? Because it's good for his teeth. It's an important thing for him. Why do, why do we tell kids to eat broccoli? Because we really want to just watch them squirm. No, we tell them to eat broccoli because we know it is a means that, that will be used to grow them physically. That they need those nutrients. Why does God tell the church to do things? Because it is essential for our growth. He knows that th this is the very thing that you need, Christian, for you to grow in your walk. And so often we can come up with other ways to grow. You know, maybe uh, Roman Catholicism is an excellent example of that. Maybe we just need to burn some incense and do these things and uh, venerate these saints and, and we can come up with our own way of growth, our own growing program. That's not what God uses to grow the Christian. He, he uses the things that he's commanded. And so if he's commanded the teaching of his word, if he's commanded that we sit under the preaching of his word, we can have great hope that that will be a means that he uses to grow us. Not that uh, the pastor speaking has any power in himself. but that God uses the simple proclamation of His Word and the teaching of it to grow Christians. It's, it's in His grace that He uses that means. And so it's a necessity for a church. It's commanded for our good. It's sufficient for our growth. And if you think about it, it's rather simple. It's rather ordinary, isn't it? You just... You're, for those of you who are still awake right now, if you look at me, there's nothing spectacular about me. There's no, you know, sort of angel, chorus of angels around me singing. There's not a golden beam from heaven coming down. Just sinful men called by God to teach His Word. It's simple. It's ordinary. You're not likely right now having some sort of uh, euphoric moment looking at me. You're not having a mountaintop experience right now, are you? 
you know, from your senses, if you were to judge this moment right now just from your senses, nothing is happening. You don't, uh, probably don't feel anything. You probably, uh, there's, it seems so ordinary, so simple, nothing fantastic about it. But something is happening. God, in His grace, uses this simple moment to build His church. God, in His grace, uses sinful men to build up His church, which is incredible. We don't always see it. We don't always feel it. But we believe it. We believe it. Because we trust that what God commands, He will use in His grace. Why? Because God cares about His church. God cares about the well-being of His church more than we do. God cares about His church so much that He sent His Son to purchase her as a bride for His Son. And if God will go to such expenses, if God will go to such lengths to purchase a people for himself, do we really think he's just going to leave us out to dry? God uses the things that he commands. He, we can have great confidence that God will use the preaching of his word to grow his church, to sanctify his people, to, to wash his bride clean. Our feelings are not the litmus test to know whether or not God is using this simple means to grow us. Feelings are not a good way to determine if we're growing. I mean, if you think about it, when you were uh, growing up as a child, you, you grew physically, I hope. You started as a little baby, and none of you look like little babies anymore, so that means something happened. You, you, you physically grew. And as you were physically growing... Did you often or even frequently feel that growth happening? You know, sometimes you might get a, a growth pain or something like that. But by and large, that growth that happened, you didn't feel. That's why most of us growing up, you have the, uh, in my house, it was the, I don't even know what to call it. It, it was a support beam thing. I'm, I'm not in construction. Something a wall of some sort, and, and what do you do? You stand up next to the wall, and, and your mom or your dad, they, they take a pencil, and they draw a little line and write the date, and, and maybe you go back next birthday, and you do the same thing, and you stand up, you know, and you try to, I was always trying to compete with my brother. He's six and a half years older than me, so I, I never won, but I'd like to think maybe I won something, participation trophy, and so I'm standing up, you know, and you do the line, and you look back, and, and you grew. You grew over that course of the year. You didn't feel it. You didn't know that it was happening. But as you look back through time, as you, as you see the evidence in your life, the evidence on that wall, you see that growth really did happen. You didn't feel it. You didn't know that it was happening at the time. But it was little by little. Small bits by small bits. And it's the same for our spiritual growth. Often, you know, there can be times of um, sort of growth pains. 
deep emotional moments that we have of, of joy or pain where you, you feel God working in your life. And it, uh, there are moments like that. But by and la- large, ordinarily, our spiritual growth is, growth is unfelt, undiscerned, little by little. Until you look back, you look back on the, the wall of your spiritual growth, so to speak. You think back. The type of Christian that you were five years ago or ten years ago, and you think, and you make a mark on the wall, and you see, I've grown. God's grown me. There's growth that has happened. I didn't, I didn't feel it at the time. I didn't sense it at the time, but it was happening little by little. And that is so, that, that concept is so important when we sit under the teaching of God's Word. Because if we think that we gauge our growth by emotional experience, you will frequently think that you're not growing. Because most weeks, you're not going to have an intense emotional reaction. And just how crippling that can be. If, if you think that this is pointless because you don't feel anything, what's the point? I'm not growing. How crippling that can be in the Christian walk. But if we realize that the growth that the Christian enjoys is a slow, gradual thing, that that God uses the things that he's commanded, and and, and he commands uh, the, the public preaching of his word and us sitting under it, we can have confidence. We can have confidence that God is growing you right now, Christian. God is doing a work in your life right now, Christian. You may not feel it, but He's doing it. He's promised to do it, and He's faithful to His promises. And that's, that's the encouragement that I need. Why do I wake up Sunday morning? Well, I'm, in part, I'm paid to be here. But I, I want to be here. Why? Because God uses this to grow His church. And so we can have great courage, great desire to want to be here week in, week out, sitting under the simple preaching of His Word, because this is the thing that God uses to grow His people. The simple, ordinary thing. And so, point of application, let us devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. Let us sit under the simple teaching of God's Word every Lord's Day, trusting that God uses this simple, this this beautiful moment to gradually build up His church. Let's come to Sunday hungry to hear God's Word, trusting that that will be the, the nourishment that our soul needs, that God will use that to build us up and conform us into the image of His Son. Devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. Secondly, secondly, we see the early church devoted themselves to the fellowship. To the fellowship. Fellowship is the assembling together of Christians. Uh, it's a, a koinonia. It's a, it's a communing together. It's a, a joint participation with one another. And this is what we're commanded to do every Lord's Day as well, not only to sit under the preaching of God's Word, but to assemble together, to fellowship with one another. Let's read some more in Hebrews 10. Let's see where this is commanded. Well-known passage. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The writer of Hebrews is saying, because we have confidence to enter into the true holy of holies through the blood of Christ, since we can enter into the presence of God because in Christ we are washed clean of our sin, because of all this, we're to draw near to God. And we're to draw near to God together, not neglecting to meet together, not neglecting to assemble together, to fellowship with one another. God commands us to join together in corporate worship. We're to assemble together as the body of Christ, to be reminded of Christ in our worship of Christ. It's the very meaning of the word church. Church is kind of a word that has a lot of uh, baggage, but that the, the Greek word is ekklesia, means assembly. An assembly of what? Christians, the bride of Christ, the church of Christ. The church is a body of believers that assembles. That's the the very definition of the word. The church that assembles to use what God has given us to build each other up. The local church is a body of believers dependent on one another, dependent on Christ, committed to one another, committed to Christ. And so we, we commune together, we assemble together, we have fellowship with one another so that we might speak the truth in love. So that when each part of the body is working properly, the body grows so that it builds itself up in love. Again, that's, that's rather simple, isn't it? Rather ordinary. Here we are, look around. Nothing fancy. Again, your neighbor probably doesn't have a halo on his head or her head. It doesn't look that marvelous. It looks rather ordinary. No one, you know, from the outside looking in is is saying, wow, this is amazing. Look at all these people next to each other and talking to each other and It's not exciting. It's simple. There's nothing flashy about it. it. Again, you're probably not having some mountaintop experience when your neighbor is speaking the truth to you in love. Sometimes that doesn't feel very good. But it's what God uses. It's what God uses to build His church. If our authority is anything other than God's word, we would have to conclude that nothing is happening right now. And yet, 
If God commands the assembly of the saints, if God commands that we speak the truth and love to one another, we can have great confidence that God will graciously build up His church through this simple means. The fellowship of believers. Thirdly, not only did the early church devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship of the saints, they also devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. To the breaking of bread. This is a a reference to the Lord's Supper, to communion. And we see that uh, is commanded in, in 1 Corinthians, if you want to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Starting in verse 23, 1 Corinthians eleven, twenty-three. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. They're to, to do this again in remembrance of him. In the same way, also he took the cup, After supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Communion. Christ commands his church to partake of communion, of the Lord's Supper. And as we do so, we're to remember something. We're to remember the body and the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ. Christ. Whereas the, the teaching of the Word points us to Christ verbally, the Lord's Supper points us to Christ uh, physically, as it were, tangibly. You can taste and see the Lord's body and the Lord's blood. And we feast on this. We feast on uh, uh, the reality, these, these reminders that the body and the blood of Christ was shed for me. Is there anything more glorious to remember than that? We feast on the glories that Christ came as a man. He lived on our behalf. He died on our behalf. He rose from the grave, that he seated on high, that because of his work our sins are forgiven, that we have the righteousness of Christ in our account. That is what we get to feast on when we take communion. These these glorious truths, and so often, this is the meal that my soul needs. I need to be reminded time and time again of these glorious things. Why 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 does Jesus have to say, do this in remembrance of me? Because often we forget. Even though we know, we forget the glories of these truths. And Christ dines with us in the supper. He communes with us. And it's a, not only looking back, looking forward, it's a foretaste of that, that glorious day when we will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will get to enjoy a full communion with our Lord and Savior. I mean, think about it. It's a little wafer, a little glass, Look up, 
We don't even use glass, a little plastic. It's simple. Nothing extraordinary about it, face value. It doesn't become something that it isn't. There's nothing profound about these things in themselves. And probably to the unbelieving world, it just seems like a silly snack time. How does this build up the church? Pragmatism wouldn't lead you to this sort of church growth model. I mean, just imagine the corporate, uh, corporate uh, corporation. How, how can we strategize to build the church? I got an idea for you. What if they eat a little bread and they drink a little cup? That'll really boost uh, attendance. <laughs> no. Pragmatism wouldn't lead to this. We wouldn't conceive of something like this to build up the church. Feelings also don't particularly indicate that God is sanctifying us uh, through communion. Yet again, if God commands the Lord's Supper, if God commands that we dwell on the body and blood of Christ for sinners such as us through bread and wine, then we have great hope. We have great hope. If God commands that we commune with Christ and each other as we eat the bread and drink the wine, then we have great hope that this simple act is a means that God is graciously using to build His church. And so, I look forward to communion. It's a glorious thing, even though it doesn't look glorious. Lastly, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. To the prayers. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, we're told that we should pray without ceasing. We're to have a, a, a lifestyle of continual prayer, and certainly we should pray when we gather together as the body of Christ. A.W. Pink once said, Prayer is not designed for the furnishing of God with knowledge of what we need but it is designed as a confession to him of our sense of need. We don't pray to God to let him in on some details that he was unaware of about. He knows all things. We come to God out of a, out of a great sense that, that, that we have a great need. And so we, we, we go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. We confess this great need. We consider his holiness and, and our sinfulness. We consider our neediness and His faithfulness. We cry out to God to have mercy, to do that which we are utterly incapable of doing, to do that which we don't deserve to have happen. We come to God with great need. If there's one thing that seems particularly absurd to the unbelieving mind, it's this. It's absurd to the person who thinks themselves independent, self-sufficient. To be the master of their own fate. Prayer doesn't make much sense. They might be able to think of a type of prayer that if you, if you pray hard enough, you know, you can maybe twist God's arm into doing what you want. You know, if you pray the right way, if you say the right words, then you can have God do what you want. That's, that's maybe a type of prayer they can 
conceive about, but the idea of a prayer in which we're coming before God and just confessing, Lord, I need your help. I'm dependent on you. I need you to do uh, these things that I can't do. Sanctify me. Change my heart. Work in me. Lord, save sinners. Lord, work in this situation for the good of your people and the glory of your name. Do these things that I cannot accomplish. I am completely dependent on you, Father. And I trust that you are faithful and gracious and merciful. That sort of prayer is absurd to the unbeliever. Maybe in a moment, you know, they can conceive of that. But a a week-in, week-out commitment to prayer is unnecessary to the person who thinks they're self-sufficient. But as Christians, we know otherwise, don't we? We're completely dependent, utterly dependent. We must have God be merciful and gracious upon us. We depend on it. And so, we ga- as we gather together, we pray. We, we cry out to God to do the thing that we can't do. We cry out to God and ask Him to do the thing that we don't deserve Him to do. And we remember who He is, that He is faithful, that He's good and gracious and merciful, and we praise Him for that as we trust Him to do what is good and right. We come to God in prayer and we confess our great need for Christ. That if we do not have Christ, we are damned. We are condemned. We must have Christ. We depend on God for Christ. We come to God and confess our great need for His Spirit. That all that we do is vanity apart from the work of the Spirit. That unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. So we come to Him dependent on Him. And we rely on Him because He is gracious and merciful, faithful and loving. And as we do this simple act, as we simply come to our Father as needy children, our Father is pleased to use this means to build up His church. Not because of the grandness of our prayers, but because of the graciousness of our Father. Not because of the eloquence of our words, but because of the faithfulness of our Father. Prayer is beautifully simple. It's just a simple coming to our gracious Father with great need and trusting Him to do what's best. That's simple. In conclusion, the church is God's church. He gets to decide what we ought to do. Our worship is directed toward God. He gets to decide how He is to be worshipped. God does not leave us in the dark as to what we're to do as a church. He doesn't leave it up to us to try to figure it out. 
He gives us clear commands, and those commands are sufficient. Those commands are what we should devote ourselves. Those commands are what we should prioritize and value. And those things that he commands are beautifully simple. They're simple. We're to assemble together as the body of Christ, to listen to the public teaching of the word of Christ, to partake of the body and blood of Christ, to approach God in prayer through the work of Christ. No, we didn't detail it uh, today. We're to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to the praise of Christ. And as we do these simple things, week in, week out, we trust that God will graciously use the things that He has commanded to build His church. Even if we don't feel anything, even if it doesn't look like anything is happen, happening, we can depend on God's faithfulness to save sinners and sanctify His saints through the things He has commanded. And as we do see progress over time, as you see the, the lines on the wall get higher and higher, we know it's not because we came up with some really cool strategy. We know it's not because we brought in uh, pyrotechnics in here. It's not because we're really clever and we, had just, we just figured it out how to grow. If we see any growth, we know it's entirely because of the work of God as He uses these simple things to grow us. And so, let us devote ourselves week in, week out to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us the privilege of being able to worship you. There's no a greater purpose in life than uh, to, to be able to worship the Creator, to, to praise Your name. You the, who are the source of all that's good and beautiful and, and glorious, You the one that's worthy of all praise. We thank You that You have created us to praise and to worship Your good and gracious name. Father, we thank You that not only you created us, but that you have redeemed us. That in our sin, we would have continued to reject and rebel against you. That we did not want to do this thing that is so good. That we didn't want to uh, do what we were purposed for. And yet, you saved us. Father, pray that you would help us to worship you. That we would grow in our worship. We confess we still wrestle with sin. That that we don't give weight to the things that you've commanded the way that we should. We pray for your help. Lord, help us to think rightly about how we ought to worship you, that you actually care about how you are to be worshipped, and you have tell, told us how you are to be worshipped, and we thank you that these things are simple, that they don't require much, that they can be done anywhere at any time. And Lord, we Pray that we would commit ourselves to these things, trusting that you will use these things to grow us and conform us into the image of your Son. And, and Father, when, when we do see that growth, when we look back on our life and contemplate where we've come from and where we're at, as we see that growth 
and pray that we would be quick to give you all the glory and honor and praise that it's your work as you have done it it's not because of the work of our hands or because we were really clever or really good at something but because of how gracious you are and faithful you are to do what is good for your church and pray this all in Christ's name amen for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever amen and amen you are dismissed There'll be a prayer couple up front if you'd like to pray with someone. Thank you.